Welcome to this MOOC by the All Wells Faculty for Dental Care Professionals from Bangor University. Hello, I'm Paul Brocklehurst and this is a podcast for the Gerodontology MOOC. In this podcast, we're going to be discussing about how to prevent disease in older people. So, um, as I said, my name is Paul Brocklehurst and I'm the director of the All Wales Faculty of Dental Care Professionals. I'm an honorary consultant in dental public health and I'm interested in role substitution, i.e. getting um, members um, of the dental team more fully utilised in how we deliver dentistry going forwards. Hello from me, I'm George Tsakos. I'm a professor in dental public health at University College London and also an honorary consultant in dental public health with NHS and Public Health England. And uh, I have um, worked uh, on oral health and ageing issues for a number of years, collaborating with Paul and with Jerry. Hello, uh, I'm Jerry McKenna. I'm a senior lecturer and consultant in restorative dentistry, working in Queen's University, Belfast. Um, I have a particular interest in improving oral health care for older adults, and I've been involved in uh, quite a bit of research into this particular area. And my current role, I also train uh, dental undergraduates and again with a particular focus on how they provide care for older patients. Hello, I'm Fiona Elwood. I'm subject expert at Bangor University. I'm a registered dental nurse of 33 years and still working um, in clinically, although not as much as I was. My current role um, is involved with dental charities and working in education to uh, promote and progress dental nurses. My previous work has been around um, working with stakeholders, looking at vulnerable groups and delivering oral health care, and particularly with the older group. So, Jerry, George, Fiona, how do we go about preventing disease amongst older people? Uh, so I think we have to, to realise that we're, we're talking about managing chronic oral diseases. All of these oral diseases are actually preventable conditions. We just need to get the right infrastructure in place and we give we need to give patients the right messages and keep delivering those messages. Um, if we think about the different uh, disease processes that we're talking about, if we're talking about periodontal disease, this generally comes down to maintaining good oral hygiene in terms of um, physically brushing teeth, interdental cleaning, all of these sorts of things. But what we must acknowledge in this age group is that those may well be challenging for patients to um, to achieve themselves. So we may well have patients who have arthritis in their hands, which make it very challenging to do this. You know, taking perhaps some older patients and instructing them at length about flossing, for example, may well not be feasible in this group. So we need to think about um, cleaning aids that may help with that. So whether that's modifying toothbrushes, um, providing ones with thicker handles, we generally find that electric toothbrushes, for example, are quite often a lot easier for patients who have arthritis or have manual dexterity problems, a little bit easier for them to manipulate. There are better things out there in terms of interdental cleaning, like um, TP brushes, like interdental brushes, which may well find, you know, patients may well find it that little bit easier to, to do that. So I think that's that's one of those things. Now, that may well in turn also require older patients to come for professional cleaning on a more regular basis, perhaps three monthly rather than six monthly. Um, but those are the sorts of things we can do to help to prevent periodontal disease. In terms of caries, we're mainly talking about the disease process of root caries in older patients. 
again, we know the the, the etiological factors that, that really accompany root caries. They tend to be a diet which is rich in sugars, a lack of um, cleaning of the teeth. Uh, we often have superimposed in this the issues of dry mouth and, and lack of saliva. So we need to look at each of those individual things. So it, it involves giving good preventative advice. It involves, again, supplementing our, our cleaning strategies for these patients as well. But there may well be other professional things that we can look at to prevent caries, such as prescribing high fluoride toothpaste, uh, putting fluoride varnish onto root, uh, exposed root surfaces. These sorts of things can help with this process. And again, there are other pharmacological um, adjuncts out there that people can use. Um, things that can be painted onto teeth, patients can, can use these themselves as well, which can be very, very helpful. But I think it involves giving good preventive advice, but also seeing these patients on a regular basis to monitor these disease processes as well. So we're going to be covering sort of the importance of fluoride supplements a little bit later on in the podcast. George, you wanted to say something. Yes, because I think when we think about preventing disease in older people, the, the first aspect, the first line of defence, if you like, is what Jerry de determined before in sort of a clinical prevention and what we can do actually when they are there. Um, there's, so this there's, is chair side. In this chair side, if you like. And, and there's, um, while we, we're doing this and we should be aligning this to the most um, sort of evidence-based messages, if you like, and, and for that we have the delivery, Delivering Better Oral Health tool, Toolkit and its revisions that provide that practically, and this is something that someone can, as a take-home message, is important to follow, I think, because if, if you look at other countries, um, they do not necessarily have uh, that level of background work that has been done in, in, in the UK that allows uh, clinical prevention to focus uh, well and based on evidence. So I'm trying to, to view this from a more international perspective, if, if you like, looking at, at European countries. Um, how many do they have uh, a similar toolkit like the one we have? And one can say that, well, we can improve it and it's being improved and updated. Well, the answer is not many, if any. Uh, and I think we we can see all the, the difficulties and challenges with it. But at the same time, it is a big opportunity because the background work has been done and it's being done. So I, I want to paint also a more positive picture uh, in, in this respect. Uh, but also that that is about clinical prevention, there's a, there's a broader, um, if you like, the public health side of prevention, more into health promotion. Um, and I, I think that the oral health professionals have to play a key role in collaboration, in integrated programs around health uh, of the aging population where we have a key role to play. That might seem a lot public health-wise, if you like, but it is still very important and it cannot happen in isolation. So being having an oral health input in the broader uh, programs of public health that tackle the major determinants, the major social determinants of health is essential. Because as Jerry said before, uh, you know, perio is a social disease and it's basically a dirt disease, it's about hygiene. Caries is a social disease and it's basically a sugar disease. So it's about a, a, a reduction of sugar consumption. This will not necessarily happen in public health programs that look only at oral health. Uh, thinking about broader actions around the sugar levy, for example, all these discussions we are having in this country at the moment, oral health community has to play a role. And if I can add a final 
third point, if you like, we have to think that these older people are older people now, but they haven't been all their lives older people. We almost view them as if in a snapshot, you know, as if we take a picture and they are old or older. They are older now, but they weren't before. So if we want to prevent disease on older people, there isn't a best strategy than start really young in line with the Marmot Review on Inequalities uh, in, in England, um, we need to think that instead of having to fight an uphill battle when they are 65, 70, 75 with lots of oral health and other health issues, maybe we should try and prevention early on so to bring the next generation at that age threshold, if you like, in a much better oral health state. So we're talking about really thinking around planning for the future in terms of, of, of um, as adults um, age, catching them, catching potential uh, antecedents sort of early, um, and also taking a much broader perspective in terms of it, oral health not just being something that is associated um, in terms of prevention-wise with dental health professionals, but it's with the whole, um, or, sorry, the whole health team. Yes, exactly. And I, and I think, you know, we, we need to have the full spectrum available and everyone has a role. And I understand that um, it is much easier if you think at, at the uphill downstream, upstream downstream approach, it's always much easier. And, and that's from the work uh, that has been done by Richard Bort and colleagues that to show that it's easier to do the chair side education of it. But also there's more limited evidence, uh, there's evidence that this is of limited effectiveness, if you like. It's much more difficult to think of a broader advocacy in public health roles because it's not what we are naturally trained to do. But we are, as oral health professionals, very well placed in terms of knowledge base to input at the broader policy levels. So if we don't do it, I don't know who will do it. And if we don't do it now, when we face, as we said in a previous uh, discussion, all this epidemiological burden in oral health of ageing populations, I don't know when we're going to do it. So I think the time is relevant. Fiona, any thoughts there? I've got a number of thoughts, really. Um, I think the picking up uh, the society uh, position is, is really important. Um, there's something that um, perhaps either George or Jerry would maybe like to pick up on for me, which is a social prescribing, maybe or may not. I think that's quite important, but coming through... Um, as one of the, the newer things. But I think as, as a dental nurse goes, or oral health educator, um, it's about oral health messages being concise, being consistent, being short and being simple. Um, and making sure that everything that you sort of talk to a patient about is realistic, it's achievable. Because if you set goals that are too high or too big, um, that patient isn't going to listen to you. Um, there's a little bit of uh, research been done recently about uh, telling patients what to do as well. And showing that not telling patients what to do actually is more successful than actually telling them what to do. I think there's a little bit to be talked around um, about choices and cost as well, because a lot of older patients are not very sure about the exemptions and therefore avoid going to the dentist unless they're going into the hospital situation um, because they're not sure whether they have to pay for treatment. And when they've got limited funds, potentially, it might be something that they just take out of the radar. Um when I go back to think about resources, you made some really good points, Jerry, about um, adapting for uh, manual dexterity. Even um, explaining to nurses that you can use things like a tennis ball or a squash ball and putting a hole through them to show that 
you are not judging that book by a cover. You can't say to somebody, right, here's the most super-duper electric toothbrush, it's 200-odd pounds. That might not be a priority in their life. So looking at what alternatives there are and actually coming right back down to the very simple things. Um, so we've done a lot of work around that. With dental nurses, I think it's really important to show that. Um, and I think uh, you mentioned the fluorides. I think looking at the additional duties uh, that the dental nurses can do can play a huge part in applying the, the fluoride application as well. I think that's really important. Um, and making the right use of the right person at the right time is, is what we talked about before, but it goes back to George's point about making every contact count um, because we need the right people at the right time taking that message. And if we bring somebody into a practice and then they go home, um, to a different place, they might not be able to put those things into place. I'm particularly struck by the idea that I think in the movie you said around the how we um, style our oral health messages in terms of consistency, simplicity, um, and them being achievable. Because um, I think we've, for, for, for quite some time, certainly in my practicing sort of life, we've often um, put messages out there which have really not achieved any of those three three objectives they haven't been necessarily simple they haven't necessarily been achievable we've we've given our patients um a lot of information um and i think that's really really key going forwards and your your point there georgie in terms of you know we are very much sort of leading europe and internationally in terms of having um brought all the evidence together about and, and knowing what what actual technology sort of works and what what uh, is important, I think is 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 important as well. So, thinking of coming back to you, Fiona, thinking about um, sort of in practice prevention. George made the point about the fact that we need to think about this much more broadly. Um, so, in practice, like that sort of downstream action as opposed to the more sort of public health upstream type of actions. What what things can we do um, as dental nurses in the surgery in that in practice prevention with older people? I think in an ideal situation, if you got a preventative unit and you could work with this patient, um, if you could look at what they can do, um, work with them, use good resources like models and, and toothbrushes, get them to show you what they do, see if you can help modify what they're doing, if, if that would help them. Um, use visual aids rather than written, uh, written literature. I'm, I'm a great lover of the smog testing, although it's not foolproof. But you know, we give information out. We overburden with leaflets. Some of it is very biased to product. Um, mm. We need to be really, really careful on that one as well. Um, but it is about time. And there's an element of me would like to say behaviour change, but I'm very cautious around that because I, I look at it from the Com B perspective where that patient's got to be in a place where they want to and they're ready to change. They understand the need for change. They need to be motivated, have the ability and the capacity. Coming back to your point that you made, George, in the previous podcast about actually it being a decision-making process that you work with the patient with people rather than actually to them or at them yes and i think that's essential i mean any and there is some evidence about brief behavioral interventions following uh the model about um the motivation in a way of of the patient to these are the patients that want to change these are the patients that in the first instance they have come to receive a care uh, and then clinical prevention might well work 
but not any clinical prevention, not us regurgitating what we know from the dental school or whatever education that, you know, we give you facts and go away and we told you and you accept it. Why would they? Would we accept if someone came to tell us something without critically viewing it? Why then we expect the patients to just be exactly as we tell them they should be? They need to be part of that. They need to be convinced. And these are the motivated ones. M my point is that that's fine, but what about those that will never come to us? What about those that will never come to services? They would still have preventable oral diseases at older ages. And this is where I think public health conventions make, can make a big difference. Again, the same caveats apply. So one has to think and learn from, from the other uh, big behaviours, if you like. How has smoking prevalence been reduced? Is it because people realised that smoking is bad for their health? I think they knew it before when the prevalence was higher. Um, so it's not just a provision of information that will make someone change the behaviour or in a, a population group change the behaviour. So one has to make the healthier choices the easier choices. And I'm going back into the 80s, the motto uh, that, that determines, if you like, the, 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 the beginning of health promotion activities. So you have to work in the broader uh, initiatives and try to make the healthier choices the easier choices. Of course there's a room for individual preventive approaches, but this refers to those that want to do it. So for those, I fully agree, we need to tailor the message so they are part of the process rather than recipients of our knowledge. I mean, I think the smoking example is a really good one. I mean, as you sort of say, um, there were a plethora of, of um, smoking interventions which were aimed at educating uh, patients which didn't really make a huge amount of difference because often they had that knowledge. What seems to have made this, the difference at a public health level is um, the introduction of, of uh, the taxes um, and the smoking public places. So two, two examples of what we would describe as upstream actions made a significant difference in um, the smoking prevalence um, and probably more powerful than, but not replacing the sort of one-to-one -one education. No, we don't have to select. We have an armory at our disposal and we can use all of it. But uh, in essence, these broader interventions help reduce the prevalence of smoking, also sort of moderate a bit the inequalities in smoking because they apply to the whole population. Similarly, we have now a, a big discussion in this country and in many other countries around um, the tax on sugar, uh, sugary beverages and the the preliminary evidence we have is that this might be a, a measure worth considering. So I would be open-minded on this. You know, we have to improve the, the health of the population. If that at the same time improves the oral health, excellent. Okay, I want to move on to our third um, element here, which is um, something which Fiona mentioned um, earlier um, around sort of fluoride supplements. So what we mean by that is things like fluoride varnish and, and high fluoride toothpaste. So what's the role of fluoride supplements in the management, um, sorry, in the prevention um, of disease in older people? So, I mean, I think we've said on a number of, of occasions that we're, we're talking about a preventable chronic disease. So um, dental caries is a preventable condition. We know what the etiology of caries is. It's, it's the fact that 
people are eating sugars, which fuels bacteria in their mouth that then basically triggers the, the, the breakdown of, of tooth substance. So we need to look at this in terms of how we prevent things. One of the things that has been proven to have a significant impact on this is the use of, of fluoride. So fluoride has an impact on the one of the constituent parts of enamel um, and actually makes that enamel essentially more difficult to dissolve for the karyogenic bacteria. So it makes enamel um, less prone to, to break down and less prone to, to decay essentially. So there are a number of different ways of, of providing fluoride from putting fluoride in the natural drinking water right the way through to individualized ways of doing this in terms of prescribing high fluoride toothpaste or painting fluoride varnish onto tooth surfaces. In the case of older adults where we have exposed root surfaces, as we've talked about, um, it's very, very important that we up our preventative game in terms of these surfaces. So this is a nice way of basically getting high dose fluoride onto these surfaces. In terms of this, I mean, I'm a big fan of a tool called the Kerry's Risk Assessment, which is essentially a way of categorizing patients into low, medium and high risk. So this is a document or even an online version whereby we can look at patients' behaviors, we can look at what is going on in patients' mouths and make a formal assessment of how likely they are to develop caries. I think it's very, very useful in that we can actually say to a patient, you are at high risk of developing caries. I would hope that that would empower them to actually do something to, to help to prevent caries developing. But what also comes with this caries risk assessment, which takes into account a variety of, of different elements from how recently they've had uh, fillings in their teeth, uh, if they have dry mouth, how many medications they're taking, do they wear a removable partial denture, it gives a very good overview. But what that then leads into is a preventative regime for those patients. And certainly patients who are in the high caries risk category, and a lot of our older patients will be due to the fact that they will have reduced saliva, they may wear removable partial dentures, they've got exposed root surfaces, um, perhaps a lack of uh, manual dexterity, those then indicate that we should be using some of these adjuncts to help them with that prevention. So we can prescribe high fluoride um, toothpaste. This comes as uh, 5,000 parts per million, which is roughly probably four times as much fluoride as what's in normal toothpaste. Uh, but that does have to be prescribed by the dentist and on a repeat prescription essentially for the patient to get that. Fluoride varnish um, is something that we can provide in the surgery for a patient, whereby this is taken from a tube and actually physically painted onto those root surfaces as well. There are other things as well, like high fluoride mouthwash, which again may be applicable for some of these patient groups as well. But essentially, if we're trying to sort of redress the balance in terms of caries versus prevention, I think fluoride and fluoride supplementation is something that's very, very important in this group. So um, a couple of really important points there in terms of the assessment of need to begin with, um, and certainly in Wales, part of the um, new uh, dental contract, which has been uh, piloted, um, the contract reform program does have that through ACORN, uh, the assessment of sort of needs and risk. And then obviously the, the potential um, tools that we have to actually deliver that sort of fluoride to, to the tooth sort of service. Um, Fiona, any thoughts there? I'd like also to move on to think also about um, how we might prevent um, dental disease 
in sort of care homes and that. But before we do so, thinking about how we manage patients in the surgery, any further thoughts? It's quite an interesting one because the additional duties um, for the dental nurse, it does include the application of uh, fluoride varnish, whether under prescription of a dentist or part of a public health uh, programme. Um, that said, a lot of the training doesn't always match up with the particular patient groups. Um, so the training is very varied um, and is not often uh, targeted around the older group. And if it was targeted around the group, it would potentially probably be the ageing well or the worried well. Um, it's very different applying topical varnish to a patient who potentially has dementia or is struggling uh, in a chair. Uh, and also, um, if, if I sort of take that a little bit further, if you think about the dental team, the ergonomics of uh, training the team on how to stand, how to present yourself, how to work well with those patients that need to be in a different position are all things that don't always come through in all of the training. So that's um, that, that's really needs uh, thinking out, I think. Um, I know a lot of the dental nurses are particularly uh, geared to working towards the current uh, version of Delivering Better Oral Health Toolkit and what we call the RAG rating, so the red, amber, green. But again, that is there as advisory. It's not mandatory. So across the board, that doesn't happen. Um, and particularly not always for the older age group. It's geared to the younger end of life. Um, and whilst we're thinking about life course, and yes, it's great that we start with a younger person, it will eventually come through. We've still got this huge um, sort of if that's a ticking time bomb. I don't think I'd be over-exaggerating, but we've got a huge population of the older person coming along that we need to deal with. So. And, and, the, and the point that you make there, I think, as well, um, around it, the fact that not every older person will be going practice so there are these limitations of of doing what i would term as like a um you know a a downstream intervention is that you can actually propagate more health inequalities because you're only treating those people who are attending sort of practice very much to the point that you were making um earlier sort of george what about how we can potentially manage um and prevent disease in in a care home environment I mean, that is a real challenge. So how would we go about that kind of activity? It's particularly challenging if I could just come in, Paul, and just sort of do the dental nursing bit first and then Jerry, if you want to pick up. But um, the dental nurse, yes, can actually apply the fluoride varnish, but unless you've got a public health consultant involved in that, they can't work under a PGD, so a patient group directive. So in essence, a dentist would have to go in and see that patient and do a prescription to enable the nurse to go into the care home. So we've got a barrier. Um, because it's a Palmer prescription-only medicine, it's the only way we can do it unless we've got that under a public health consultant. So whilst you've got the whereabouts and the team that would do it and are very willing to do it, there are certain barriers that cause us a problem as dental nurses. I think we have to acknowledge that providing and improving oral health in care homes is currently an extremely challenging situation that faces us all across the UK at the minute, I have to say. Uh, I don't know of any region of the United Kingdom that has really um, made massive strides in this area. I know there are a number of different um, a number of different programs running and um, some of us sitting around this table are involved in, some, in, in research in this area and hoping to address some of these issues, but there are fundamental challenges to delivering oral health in care homes. 
We have issues around um, the patient population within care homes. Uh, you know, whenever we look at the numbers of patients within care homes who have dementia or who are cognitively impaired, you're probably getting somewhere to between 30 to 50% of most care home residents have some form of cognitive decline. We have issues around how much of a priority oral health is within care homes. We have spoken in, in previous podcasts about the changing oral health of older patients and how practice-based systems have been very slow to catch up. Nursing home systems have been extremely slow to really realise that things are changing very markedly amongst this group. About 50% of residents within care homes will have some of their own natural teeth, whereas there still remains an assumption in some care homes that they are all without any of their own natural teeth. We have huge issues in terms of care home staff who are, of course, very, very overworked and very overburdened, but also you have um, a very high turnover of staff. So I, for example, have been involved in um, providing instruction and training for care home staff uh, within care homes. They will tell me quite um, bluntly that they have very little time to deliver this. Um, but also you have a very, very high turnover of these staff. So you may well go back and having trained staff, you may well find that in three, four, five weeks time that that, um, that, that portion of, or sorry, that population of, of staff are different. So all of these things really do contribute. There are things within care homes that, that we have very little um, control over, like the diet that, that people are being provided with, which is very often geared towards um, preventing malnutrition. So it, it tends to be very um, heavily loaded with sugars and complex carbohydrates, which, yes, can stave off malnutrition, but can be pretty catastrophic for somebody's remaining dentition. So I would have to say it is a real challenge. Some of us are working on this in providing um, in providing training packages for staff, looking at more innovative ways of involving staff in this, doing all of these sorts of things. But it is certainly a real challenge at the minute. So we're going to be sort of talking a bit. We're going to, um, talking a bit about um, the Gwyn and Beth um, Care Home um, Project, which uh, in another sort of podcast. So I'll, I'll um, listeners can listen to that. George, you wanted to come in with, with a couple of points. Yes, I, I would because um, I think. The situation in care homes is of particular urgency, if you like, to address. Um, and, and we have seen this at a, as a societal level, really, because we have had the, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence uh, producing a guideline in, in recent years about this, so recognising that this is an issue, and we are uh, collectively doing research on the different aspects of the NICE guideline, so they realise it's an issue. The Care and Quality Commission... Uh, alerted to this and they are uh, sort of ringing the alarm bell and saying we need to do something about it. The dental community in general is uh, acting to this. Everyone realises there is an issue. Uh, for me, it was actually a, a, a career-changing event when I, the first time I went to a care home in for do, do I study in care homes in North London and realised how much behind the rest of the population of the same age their oral health was and how big the issues were and at the same time how neglected. So we have a big issue and at the same time we don't have services really for that. What could we do? Um, and because there are things we could do and, and they're happening because there are different 
uncontrolled or not very well supported oral health programs or sometimes better supported oral health programs happening but it's all of most of haphazard picture you know they can happen here not there maybe we have to do some um, shared uh, exercise where you know that the good examples can be transferred across uh, because there are also good examples happening in the country maybe we have to acknowledge for example in in the area i work in north london a lot of the boroughs have nothing and some of them now realizing how big an issue it is others have the privilege of having oral health promoters going there so these oral health promoters are a important force to work with the managers and the staff to make the changes and i will just tell you this because it it, it struck me that when we found maybe 10 years back in a, in a study in Islington, this massive problem, we said, well, we have to do something to change them. And how do we change them? Well, we can't be coming every time, can we? No. So who do we work with? With the staff and the managers. But they have no time and they are really overworked. The way we found round is to understand that some of the things around oral hygiene could be part of the CQC inspection of the Care Quality Commission inspection, which for the care homes is critical. So working and saying, well, if we work with you on this and the oral health promoter supports you to, to have an assisted toothbrushing program, then it helps you during your inspection. And that's how we have seen change and some improvement in some of those. So it has to work with what you have available and the staff Although there is, as Jerry said, this massive turnover and, you, you know, it's a big challenge, you have to work with the people on the ground. At the same time, uh, and that's for prevention and health promotion, actually, at the same time, you have to look at the wider of, of the oral health team rather than necessarily having a dentist going to provide the care or being referred to a dentist because there are other options available. Um, and looking at the dental care professionals and role substitution, that is something that can provide necessary care to this very neglected group and would be in line with the nice guideline on the issue as well. But then again, I guess, Fiona, that then brings us up, up short with the prescription-only medicine issue. Yeah, and the, the prescriber, yeah, absolutely. So we have got, and it depends on which day of the week you look at it, but around about 56,000 dental nurses on the register so there are a huge population of people who are very willing to get involved with this and would love to do it and welcome to do it but that is a barrier it's a hurdle so under the prescription only medicine um, regulations it can be a dentist that prescribes or there is a possibility of a patient group directive not for dental nurses it, it's still in the literature it doesn't include dental nurses it's hygienists and therapists so in 2008 um, it would have been useful, I think, but that's only my opinion. It may not be everybody else's that dental nurses were added to the PGD. Therefore, it would be easier to allow the nurses to go out and do some of this work. So it's either being prescribed by a dentist, um, as in a practitioner, a nearby practitioner coming into the home, or it's through a public health um, consultant prescribing. Yeah. yeah. So we're coming to the end of, of, of our podcast looking at how to prevent disease in older people and lots of, of um, thought there um, and challenges to um, overcome. So we've mainly been talking about how we generally prevent disease, uh, what can dental nurses do in the surgery and indeed in terms of these sort of community-based kind of programs, the importance of fluoride supplements 
and this whole issue about um, older people sort of owning um, their um, oral health and how we motivate and work with them um, to improve improve their oral health. So that just about concludes um, our discussion. So thank you for listening to this podcast. Uh, and of course, thank you to my guests, uh, Fiona, Jerry and George. If you're wanting to learn more about this MOOC on gerodontology, then you may be interested, as I mentioned in this podcast, about the Gwyn and Bith podcast, um, which details the uh, Welsh public health programme that's in care homes. Also, if you want to keep up to date with us online, you can follow us on Twitter. That's at AWFDCP, standing for um, the All Wales Faculty for Dental Care Professionals. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this MOOC podcast by the faculty from Bangor University. 